everybody, and welcome back to Phil at the Movies, episode number 19. No, don't adjust your sound. Uh, this is my voice for the time being. I'm uh, in uh, in quarantine, isolation right now, battling COVID. Finally, uh, finally have a touch of the vid, so I do apologize if my voice seems a little strained, but uh, certainly better than I was earlier in the week, but... You know, tried tried so long uh, and hard to avoid it, but uh, like like Laurie Strode and Michael Myers, no matter how hard you prepare and try to avoid the boogeyman, he always finds you. And uh, I guess it was my time to to finally get COVID. But in any event, I uh, I will endure. I will be fine. Uh, but just uh, bear in mind that my voice won't be as uh, its usual tenor <laughs> for today's podcast. But I will still press on, nevertheless. Uh, as I said, this is episode number 19 of this ongoing podcast series dedicated to the movies, the good and the bad, everything in between. I talk about it all for the love of movies, as I like to say. And today, continuing my deep dive into the Halloween franchise with the infamous sixth installment of the franchise, Halloween 6, or Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. And this is one which, dear God, there is uh, there, there is much a storied history about this movie, uh, certainly in the uh, in the realm of the franchise. But I'm going to try to give you my thoughts and, and some interesting facts on this movie, which uh, sadly ended up being Donald Pleasant's final appearance as Doctor Loomis. Uh, he had passed away in early 1995 before the film was released and before they had gone on to do reshoots but the movie is dedicated to his memory and uh certainly his his legacy and his uh his turn as the character lives on uh forever uh just endless contributions to the franchise but uh before that let me uh, just do a little bit of housekeeping as i often do at the start of this show uh as always if you have not done so already follow along uh rate and review this podcast uh if you have not done so all, uh, already I appreciate all your feedback and uh, warm responses over these many, many months now. Uh, as I've said, this is a passion project, and just to have your encouragement and, and and just enthusiasm makes it all that more worthwhile. So appreciate that. Uh, if you are new, again, welcome, and feel free to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your family, your friends, anybody who you think might enjoy listening to a movie buff go on at great lengths about movie monologues uh, and the like but you can follow this uh, page on twitter at phil at the movies and you of course can follow my personal handle which is phil cast movies i'm much more active on that handle than than the other one but uh you know feel free to uh tweet at me and whatnot and uh Tell me your thoughts on uh, on movies or specifically, in this case, the Halloween franchise. All right, so that's all out of the way. Let me dive in now. We are, we're, we're cruising along now. Uh, we're up to Halloween 6 uh, in, in my breakdown of the series. And so let's wind the clock back. It's 1995. Michael Myers has not been on the big screen for six years. Uh, one year shy of his longest hiatus to that point, which had been seven years from 1981's Halloween 2 to 1988's Halloween 4. And part of the reason for the, 
the delay, part of the reason for the the hiatus, if you will, was the mixed reaction. <laughs> and I'm being very generous with when I say that to Halloween 5. Halloween 5 was the lowest uh, grossing film of the series. It, it divided audiences, it divided critics, and part of the, the, the reason for Halloween 5 was the rush to capitalize on the success of Halloween 4. And as I said last time, if they had taken some a deep breath and maybe waited another year and, and fleshed out the script, Halloween 5 could have could have really been something special, but Halloween 5 is what Halloween 5 is. So there was this long pause between uh, the series, and during this time, uh, the the rights for the um, for the series had lapsed, and so there was this this bidding war. And at the time, John Carpenter was trying to get back his control of the series. He felt he was owed uh, money that he did not receive for the original movies, and he wanted to have it back uh, under his control. And if he had been successful, he would have partnered with New Line Cinema, which would have interestingly brought Michael Myers under the same roof as Freddy Krueger and Jason Voorhees at the time. So you would have had all three classic slashers under the same roof. But uh, nevertheless, uh, it didn't it didn't work out that way. And Miramax uh, secured the rights to the film, and it would be produced under their Dimension Wing. So. The story of, of how Halloween Six came to came into existence is, is rather fascinating because there was a number of different scripts written over the years. Earlier versions included Doctor Loomis in a mental institution and Tommy Doyle uh, coming to find him, and there was even talks of of an alternate dimension and, and virtual reality. Uh, one version that I uh, read about uh, included Michael Myers living as a homeless person on the streets of Haddonfield. I mean, pretty much everything was, was thrown out there, including the idea of, of sending Michael Myers into space. So it just sort of shows you how much of a, of a rock bottom the series was at this, at this particular point. And so in comes this, uh, this fan, really a self-described fan of the series, a writer by the name of Daniel Ferens. And this was his first real big Hollywood movie, and he had impressed uh, Mustafa Akkar, the executive producer, with his pitch for the movie, and he really wanted to get into the origin of Michael Myers and try to provide an explanation of why he does what he does, why he is the boogeyman. And, you know, now you would you would scratch your head at it because I think there is an acceptance that there's no need to have an explanation for Michael Myers, but... At the time, you're trying to find new creative ways to go with the series. You need a new vehicle, a new, uh, a new route, and so it made sense to say, "All right, let's let's try to explain why uh, he is the way he is," while also picking up the threads that were left untied from Halloween Five, including the Man in Black, the mysterious tattoo on Michael's wrist, and of course his uh, strange escape at the end from the Haddonfield Jail. So, a number of different drafts of this script were written and titles range from Halloween, the origin of Michael Myers to Halloween 666, again, kind of playing on this curse theme. And eventually the title, the curse of Michael Myers 
arose as a result of the film's troubled production and the feeling of it being a cursed movie, quote-unquote. And the writer was kind of shocked and dismayed because that was not what he wanted. He wanted something a little bit more, uh, you know, less on the nose, if you will. But if you look at kind of where the three or the two other prior films had been up until that point, you know, the return of Michael Myers, the revenge of Michael Myers, and now the curse of Michael Myers, it made sense in that kind of grand scheme of things. Now, interesting, as a side note, uh, Donald Blessence called the script the best since the original. And now there was many, many different drafts, and it's hard to know which one he might have been talking about. But he really liked the script. He was very excited, and he was on board to return, despite his character, uh, you know, presumably dying at the end of Halloween 5. But he, of course, wanted to bring Loomis back, being the hero of the series. So he signed on uh, without hesitation. Now, of course, as I said, this was a troubled production, and partly because of the issues and problems created by Halloween 5. And as I said, as much as I love Halloween 5, it is directly responsible for the writing challenges in SIG, which, again, was trying to resolve all of the unanswered questions uh, for the uh, that were left on the table from Part 5. Now, interestingly, the, the, the man in black who was created as a mystery character for Part 5 to kind of give the film an added uh, bit of, of, of tension and, and mystery was truly that, an enigma to the producers and writers. They had no idea who the man in black was, the idea being, well, we'll figure it out you know, down the line. And interestingly, part of the discussions were maybe making the man in black a, another family member or a brother uh, to Michael Myers, which in many ways that, I think, would have been a better direction to go rather than down this this mine shaft of, of the Curse of Thorn and this whole cult controlling Michael Myers. But, I mean, as I've said earlier, I, I don't like the idea of Michael Myers being manipulated uh, and, and, and controlled and part of that the deviation in this movie is is the famous producer's cut and the theatrical cut so part of the issue is and I, and I, and I will say this I'm not a fan of either version of this of, of this movie whether it's the producer's cut or the the theatrical cut I will say from the producer's cut standpoint there is a much more cohesive narrative, whereas the theatrical cut streamlines the movie, takes out pretty much every reference or nod to there being a cult uh, or some kind of a curse over Michael Myers, more or less just kind of hinting at that he does the bidding of, of the, the the staff at Smith's Grove, but but even then it's it's really watered down. <clears throat> and so what I say to people like, okay, wh which version do you think, you know, which version you know would I recommend? I'd say, okay, if you want a, a, a straightforward kind of slasher, flashy gore fest, watch the theatrical because that's what you're going to get with there. A lot of stuff is not going to make sense because there's scenes that are taken out of context from the producer's cut, um, which, but then again, you know, it, it's a, it's a slasher movie, so it doesn't necessarily have to make complete sense uh, A to Z. But if you want a little bit more depth and, and understanding about kind of the whole gothic nature of the, of the story and, and 
you know, ideas and explanations about a about a cult that's more or less controlling Michael Myers and 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 kind of him doing the bidding of this uh, of this of this group within the confines of of the sanitarium. Then the producer's cut is is certainly interesting. Uh, it was, of course, very you know mysterious for all these years. It was you know wasn't released until 2014 and it just existed in bootleg or uh, very you know. Uh, sketchy copies on on YouTube or whatnot, but I mean, ultimately, I, I don't think either film is 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 satisfying. I mean, part of the issue was the test screenings, and this was the first Halloween movie to to be subject to a test screening. Now that it was under the umbrella of a studio, and the test screenings went terribly. Uh, audiences hated the movie; they thought it was confusing, it was mixed up, and thus the movie went back into reshoot. So. Again, when I had mentioned earlier, Donald Pleasant had passed away, the film went into reshoots without him um, or his character, so they kind of had to work around the story you know, to try and have it make sense. And so what you ultimately get out of the theatrical version is just a kind of a straightforward slasher film that hints two previous thread lines from the earlier movies, but, but doesn't necessarily go in that direction entirely. Uh, one of the big differences, and this is spoiler uh, territory for those of you who haven't seen it, but uh, the character of Jamie, uh, who is now played by a different actress, J.C. Brandy, uh, Daniel Harris uh, ultimately did not return for the film because of an issue uh, involving her not being paid a uh, a significant uh, amount of money. She you know, had felt she had been a part of the franchise for two films, uh, she really carried the fifth movie that, you know, her character should be kind of on the same pay scale as as, uh, as others. But the producers kind of balked at it, the studio balked at it, and ultimately she, uh, you know, she didn't, she didn't appear in the movie. So she was recast uh, uh, with, by another actress named J.C. Brandy. And so there's, you know, two different versions. In, in the theatrical cut, Jamie is killed off within the first act. She doesn't make it out. Uh, Michael gets her, she escapes, but he ultimately uh, catches her and uh, you know, puts an end to her. In the producer's cut, Michael does attack her, but she survives long enough to go into the, you know, to be taken to a hospital, but then she's unceremoniously killed off by the man in black. So, I mean, whichever version you're watching, the character of Jamie Lloyd does not get a grand send-off. I mean, it's really... Uh, just sort of a waste for the character that you know, had become a fan favorite and really a staple for the series uh, since Halloween Four. But again, that was that was that was the decision. But um, supposedly, in an, an earlier draft of the script, she did actually survive much longer until the third act and kind of went down swinging. But you know, as I said, there were so many different versions and so many different rewrites that. It's really hard to know kind of what what was the definitive version of what Halloween Six was supposed to to be. Uh, it's really it's kind of a hodgepodge of of this cut and this this direction and kind of uh, crammed together in a in a very complicated and, and confusing uh, story. Uh, but one of the interesting, or really isn't even interesting, but one of the the story developments. Uh, in the movie is that Jamie now has a baby and Michael is, is going after the child, the baby to kind of be his last sacrifice again, going off of this whole cult thing. Now in the producer, the theatrical cut, 
there's no explanation of how Jamie became pregnant, why she has a baby. It just sort of is taken at face value. Producer's Cut gives a flashback sequence, which in a bizarre and really twisted way implies that the father of her child is is Michael Myers, which, I mean, I can just see why that was taken out. I mean, that that is just, I mean, it's messed up on its face, but um, it, it's, there are no words. I mean, there are no words. Like, when I say, like, there is so much wrong with this movie, that's it right there. Like, you know, you're making, you know, Michael Myers into the, you know, the dirty old uncle. Like, it's just, I, I, I don't know, it's, it had the potential, I think, to reset the franchise after the the disappointment of Halloween Five, but I think because there were so many chefs in the in the kitchen, and there really wasn't a coherent narrative idea. And again, this is you know no criticism to the to the writer, but I mean, you're trying to tie up the thread lines of two previous movies as well as the original two very daunting task and it, it kind of makes sense why ultimately in Halloween 7 or Halloween H2O they decided to essentially reboot the franchise and, and pretend like 4 and 5 uh, and 6 never happened because it is such a convoluted mess and you know this you know this movie does bring back the character of Tommy Doyle played uh, interestingly by Paul Rudd of all people this was his first um you know big movie uh role but uh you know even his character is sort of like you know he's there and they give a little bit of background in the theatrical cut but there's no real rationalization for him whereas the theater, the producer's uh, cut tries to give an explanation that he's been obsessed with Michael Myers since that night in, in 1978. And it's like, you know, like there were moments where it's like, okay, that should have been left in the final version of the movie, not just kind of leave things out there up to interpretation. Because, um, as I said, the movie is, is convoluted in and of itself. And, and when you kind of just throw things out there, nothing really makes any sense. Like, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Loomis in the theatrical cut is seemingly killed off uh, off screen. Now, side note: the screen that that Loomis has uh, in the theatrical cut is lifted from the original ending to the producer's cut, where Doctor Loomis goes back into the sanitarium to find what he believe who he believes is Michael uh, lying on the ground. But of course, it's uh, Doctor Wynn who is. Uh, spoiler alert, revealed to be the man in black and kind of responsible for shepherding and, and controlling Michael Myers. Now, Michael switches clothes with him, and so Loomis is shocked and horrified, and then essentially the the curse of Michael Myers, if you will, the, the role of protector that Dr. Wynn has been playing now is passed on to Dr. Loomis, and thus he screams in, in abject terror that this evil that he's been hunting all these years is now his quote-unquote responsibility. Again, another downer ending, which really doesn't doesn't give an idea of where the series is going to go, because of course Donna Pleasance had passed away in real life, so that ending is is kind of moot. And then even with the theatrical cut, there's no real explanation of of what's what's next. I mean, I kind of interpreted to it that you know maybe Loomis and Michael both die together in the theatrical cut. That kind of makes 
you know, more sense in, in a headcanon kind of way because, you know, both storylines end on kind of dead ends. Um, you know, I, I really don't have a preference one way or the other, oh, oh, this cut versus this cut, because I think they're both really crappy versions uh, of the movie. I, I would have liked to have seen, um, as Malika Khan has suggested, what the, the true version of Halloween 6 would have been, because it sounds like just based on the scripts that are out there circling online, it it was a much more complicated, or maybe not complicated, but more in-depth explanation about who Michael Myers is, kind of how he came to be, and sort of this whole quote-unquote cult that was behind all this trouble in Haddonfield. And while the producer's cut tries to explain that a little bit more, it, it ultimately falls flat. And so, I mean, I, I think there is, there's probably, a, you know, in another another universe, a version of Halloween 6 that actually makes sense. Because, I mean, you know, take what Donald Pleasant said uh, that I mentioned earlier. He thought it was the best script since the original. So, I mean, you know, to get him to come back to it, I mean, granted, he loved the character and loved playing the role, but... Um, you know, to come back after, you know, supposedly dying off in Halloween 5, to come back, like, there, there had to have been a, a, a reason for it. And, um, you know, just some of the, the different versions that I have, uh, I've read of the script online, what exists in both the theatrical and the producer's cut are, are, are not representations of what the film ultimately could have been so I mean it's it's kind of one of those movies that's sort of just like this this mixed bag because ultimately this is the final entry in the original timeline because after Halloween 6 everything gets uh, rebooted the thread lines are cut and in many ways it, it kind of made it makes sense because really kind of post Halloween 4 the series was sort of writing itself into a into a corner in a lot of ways because of the way Halloween 4 ended, which I do like and I do appreciate, but when you end Halloween 4 with, with Jamie essentially picking up the the metaphorical uh, baton, if you will, the knife, and, and carrying on Michael's uh, legacy, you kind of have to go all or nothing. And you know, I think in the case of Halloween 5, they tried to have their cake and eat it too, and the result was a divisive mixed bag. So flash forward six years and you've now tried to tie together two other movies while also moving the narrative forward. I mean, the end result is just this this burning <laughs> dumpster fire of Halloween pumpkins that nobody wants to watch, nobody wants to enjoy. And so I I, I kind of you know, it, it makes sense that they ultimately said, all right, we're just gonna we're just gonna stop this and and, and go back to the to the basics because I mean certainly by this point in the series you know they had they had kind of run out of ideas I mean when you start bringing in cults and 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 curses and all of that to try to explain Michael Myers you're kind of defeating the purpose of uh, of the character and that's really my issue with Halloween 6 and in many ways it kind of ties in with Halloween 5 which is trying to give an over explanation and trying to give a rationale um, uh, for Michael Myers is a problem. And in fact, you could argue that these problems began with the decision to make 
Michael Myers and Laurie Strode siblings. Um, <clears throat> now, in a future episode, I will I will discuss uh, H2O and how it serves as a perfect end to a, a quote-unquote trilogy consisting of one, two, and, and seven. But, um, you know, for, for today's purposes and kind of, you know, my you know, kind of closing thoughts on Halloween 6, the issues that I have with it is that it ultimately misunderstands what John Carpenter and Deborah Hill envisioned for the character. I mean, in many ways, you know, they probably didn't need to be sequels, but their whole idea was that, you know, it's a mystery. Michael Myers is the boogeyman. He is a shape, and you don't need to, you know, give him an explanation. There is no there there. There is no rationale. I mean, there's a reason why the original movie works and is still terrifying nearly 50 years later, because it is that sort of primal mystery, the, the, you know, the fear of the unknown. And, you know, Michael Myers is the boogeyman. He is the shape. He is a soulless, unexplained force of nature moving in like a machine on a mission, which makes sense to no one except for whatever exists in the dark recesses of his so-called mind. And in horror, I mean, frankly, in any movie, but in horror especially, simplicity is essential. And the further a franchise deviates from the, the so-called bread and butter, uh, the more complicated the story becomes and, and the less, uh, you know, kind of straightforward uh, the narrative is, general audiences are, are going to lose interest and even diehard fans are going to become jaded and, and, and ultimately disinterested because you've moved away from what the series was about. And and again, I understand the counter-argument. Well, you have to, you know, give the story some change and some new beats, otherwise it's... You know, it, it runs out. But I mean, I think the 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 problem is this movie tried to explain or give a reason for Michael's madness. This idea of this of this curse that he has on him and this cult within the uh, Smiths Grove Sanitarium that's kind of shepherding and protecting him. We don't need to know that. We we do not need to have all the T's crossed and the I's dotted. Give us suspense. Give us thrills. There can be a story, there can be a, a motivation on the part of the protagonists and main characters, but Michael Myers is best left in the shadows. And the problem with Halloween 6 is the same problem that you know, kind, of, kind of arises from Halloween 2 and even the Rob Zombie films is that there's, you try to give the character an explanation. And in Frankly, why the character works, why this, the original movie works so well, is that there is no explanation. There is no uh, rationale. He just is what he is, or it is what it is. And ultimately, I think the problem is people try to, you know, well, we'll be creative, or we'll, you know, we'll, you know, throw this out and throw this. Out. Oh, we'll make him siblings, or we'll have a cult, or I mean, like. No, you just have to kind of make it straightforward. Michael Myers is the boogeyman, that's it. And that's why I think the original worked as well as it did. And, you know, there's a line in the original script um, for uh, the, the 1978 film. And as I close out today, I want to leave it with you because to me, I think this kind of, establishes the point of the character and kind of the, the ultimate message that Carpenter and Hill 
we're, we're driving at. So this, of course, takes place at the end of the movie. Loomis has shot Michael. He discovers he's gone. And, and, and you know, the movie reaches its, its, uh, its climax. The line of the script is this. Loomis's POV. The backyard, the neighboring yards, the streets, all are empty, quiet, dark. There is only the sound of the wind swelling in the trees. Michael is gone. And I have to say that 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 has that stays with me because we don't know why he does this. We don't know who he is. We don't know if he's a man. We don't know if he's if he's human. It's all a mystery. And we as the audience can kind of come up with our own explanation. We don't need it uh, kind of spoon-fed to us. And that to me sort of represents everything about the character that, and of course, Loomis's monologue in the original movie. But uh, it's it's just fascinating, uh, kind of you know where the series started, then ultimately by this point, you know where it where it got. I mean, you can you know see Carpenter who would have wanted to try to get it back under his own control. You know, kind of seeing where the series veered off because it really did stray from his original vision and. You know, as I'll get into in later episodes, the decision to to reboot the series essentially post Halloween Six kind of is the only logical logical explanation because the series had had run out of gas, so to speak. You know, the the light went out of the pumpkin, and and they were kind of back to back to square one again. But ultimately, it it does work out because uh, we are still talking about Halloween all these years later in anticipation for the next installment in this very successful and ongoing franchise. So with that, I will I will end today's episode. I want to thank you as always for tuning in, hearing what I have to say. I'll be back next week. We're going to go back in time to the the first Halloween sequel, Halloween 2, will be on the docket next week on the chopping block, if you will, and I'll be giving my thoughts on on that film in the series in the lead up to Halloween ends. We're getting closer and closer each week. Uh, which is exciting. I can't wait to see what's in store with the final film. But uh, in any event, that is all for me today. Thank you again for tuning in and listening. Hopefully next week I'll be uh, back on the men and, and COVID-free. But in the meantime, everyone stay well, uh, be safe, stay healthy, and go check out some movies. Take care. <laughs>